0: Creeds and criticism meet. You're listening to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And we have a treat for you today. Allison delivered a paper up at Wycliffe College in Toronto, Canada. Uh, This is a re-recording of her presentation at the CATA conference. What was the uh, theme of the conference, Allison?
1: Peace and violence in scripture and theology. Okay,
0: so a very light topic. Okay.
1: And yeah, I re-recorded it because the church bells were ringing in the background and it it was kind of difficult, I think, in the re recording to pick up on what I was saying. Yeah,
0: church is kind of like that. So, uh, well, it yeah.
1: wasn't a church, but yeah. Well,
0: it's all that fun stuff. But anyway, she was in Toronto. She didn't go to a Maple Leafs game, so I'm very sad about that. He is. But also, I'm very happy because she would have gone without me, and I couldn't have that.
1: CATA is the Canadian American Theological Association, and in my opinion, the actual content that tends to be covered tends to be a bit more... Innovative um, in the span yeah. of evangelicalism. There's not as many people that come to the conference as there are at ETS right now. Right. But really, I think because ETS essentially made it very difficult for moderates to be there. Um, there still are people there um, that are more moderate, but I think I think it's just better to maybe go in a direction that's more inclusive overall of evangelicals. Right. So that's why I generally go to the CATA conferences now. Um, not that I'll like completely never go to an ETS conference, um, but that's
0: right. And CATA is known to be uh, very interdisciplinary as well. Yes. So stuff on psychology and systematic theology and philosophy and all this sort of stuff—they kind of they're actually really integrative with the way they approach stuff. I mean, J. Richard, Jay Richard Middleton's like the guy that runs it basically, and he's does like everything. So. So tell us, in a nutshell, what do people have to look forward to when they keep, put, when they keep listening to uh, this wonderful episode of our podcast that doesn't have me, like, tripping over my tongue?
1: Oh, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Next time.
0: Yeah, so what, what, what do people, should they continue listening after my fumble, what can they expect from your uh, re-recording of your paper at this conference?
1: Basically, you've got the start of a maybe constructive um, theological framework Um, I tried to look at suffering and abuse from a different vantage point than is oftentimes the case, I think, generally in churches, especially Mm. with misuses of uh, or inappropriate appeals to forgiveness, grace, and other kind of catchphrases or buzzwords um, in the context of people that have experienced abuse in various forms. Mm. And this is um, basically me trying to take a lot of what you'll see if you went back and listened to my romans um i think it was romans 5 um yep. some of what we covered in some of the other episodes you'll see some of this theology kind of emerging from the text itself um this is kind of more the tip of the iceberg though and so it's a lot of uh, theological reflection over many many years that i try to condense into a smaller uh or a, a much shorter paper um I read a little i read slow more slowly in this one than I did at the conference, but you have to kind of get through a time constraint at the conference so. this
0: is true, and how was the uh paper received uh, what were, what was the tone of the room
1: how oh it yeah it was it was very well received i wasn't sure how it would go, and i wasn't used to truth be told I'm not used to doing papers that aren't directly integrative of um, or at least presented as a hybrid between. Um, systematic and biblical studies so but anyway this was the theology section it was very well received a lot of questions Um, a lot more people I think looking for expertise and especially asking um, just very practical questions like what about what what about church discipline Um, where does that factor in with abuse and other things Mm -hmm. and um, some very good reception
0: very cool and so we'll do a quick run-through of what we're reading, and then we'll catapult our listeners into uh, into your paper. I'm reading two things right now. Uh, a friend of mine uh, and I are looking at metaphor and kephalae, so we're looking to maybe write an article about that pesky Greek word. And... I'm currently reading Gregory Dawes' The Body in Question Meaning and Metaphor in the Interpretation of Ephesians 5. Ooh. And so basically, I'm reading a 70 page chapter on metaphor and the function of metaphor and all these sorts of things. And so that's fun. And I'm also reading John Golden Gay's new translation called The First Testament, which is literally John Golden Gay's uh, translation of the entire Old Testament. And uh, it is typical john golden gay i don't know if people know this but he was our priest for about three years while Mm -hmm. while i was doing my master's here at fuller we went to uh saint barnabas for three years and so i got to see a lot of this in action and if you guys like very idiosyncratic translation that is weird and fun and fresh uh i'm enjoying it quite a bit i'm not at all an expert in old testament and so, reading his stuff is really refreshing and kind of opens up the text for me. So, those are what I'm reading. You, original pricing on Amazon was 65 bucks, but I saw it for 33, and I bought it. And it is uh, it's a treat, kind of like John. So, what are you reading?
1: Well, speaking of weird and eccentric, um, I have got cracked into Carl Jung's um, works. I finished Man and His Symbols, and then I went and got <laughs> next giving me the look. I went and got the Red Book. Um, from the library. It's this giant book that he wrote it with calligraphy, and there's a bunch of pictures in it. And it's basically... Basically, it's a genius, like, exploring his own
0: subconscious. With crayons. No. There's okay, crayons he's,
1: in there. Uh, stop lifting my book. Leave it alone. It's
0: actually pretty good. You can get a decent workout. I'm doing the squ- I'm doing a squat lift with it right now. It's, it's pretty good.
1: Carl Jung... Um, believed that there were basic archetypal uh, archetypes and symbols that go back to some of man's early development, and that this is these are kind of acting as templates that different um, systems of thought kind of or humans subconsciously fill in the blanks. It's like a collective um, subconscious almost.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating big book that has shaped a lot of Western civilization, yeah, no, and it, there is a ton of crayon in
1: it. Uh, Anyways, um, that, and, um, I also got into, uh, Rene Girard, um, I just read Sacrifice, and Mm -hmm. I think this is a sociologist, and it's an interesting thing, um, he describes a lot of, um, scapegoat theories, and in terms of, um... How uh different myths actually support the idea of using a scapegoat or someone um to appease their own bloodlust and jealousy and rivalries. And this per using a scapegoat or sacrifice um basically kind of brings a kind of a temporary peace. And it's not a real peace, it's kind of felt to be this lasting thing and the victim is usually considered this uh, deified figure. Um, But again, there's another sacrifice that has to occur. Um, So it's not really that peaceful. And so he tries to use a lot of the subtext in myths and to try to kind of bring together this kind of um, group type thinking. And some people have actually applied it to um, theories on mobs. Um, Interestingly, um, he also thinks that, uh, the Christian story is inter- is unique in that it exposes the scapegoat as a as an escapegoat. So we don't actually just hear from the victors. We hear or, or we don't just hear from the liars, who say that this person's evil. We need to destroy them. Um, we'll bring about peace if we do that. Um, we're actually getting both the liars. We're also getting. Um, the peop- we're, we're getting all the background, too, and we see that the people plotting against Jesus are actually the liars and the connivers. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So I've been reading weird things.
0: Very weird things. Yes. Anything else?
1: Um, many a thing.
0: <laughs> she has opened her entire bibliography, so she's...
1: I'm, like, going through, like, what should I share? Um, maybe something not weird that's relevant, um, to my paper, um... I really enjoyed reading Trevor Hart's um, chapter in the fulfillment of time, and I won't go through too much because you'll get, I think, some of this, I, some of these ideas in my paper, even though I just read it like today. But I think uh, one statement that he said that really stood out to me. Um, he was talking about the idea of Jesus is was um, said to be black, and how you know, in in context, that's taken to mean that Jesus identified closely with the marginalized. But what I really liked about what he said was he said, um, Jesus wasn't just black for blacks, but Jesus was black for whites. And Hmm. so I think that was very um, insightful, and especially in terms of um, who Jesus came to save, the context of the Pharisees, and this idea that Jesus um, had solidarity with the marginalized, not just for the marginalized sake, but he became marginalized for the sake of the Pharisees and religious leaders, too. Hmm. And yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. And I hope you find this interesting.
0: Okay, and without further ado, in one, two, three, four seconds, you will hear Allison talking about the Incarnation and the Iconoclast. And we hope you enjoy it. Until next time.
1: Yep. The Incarnation and the Iconoclast. A Theological Framework of Hope in the Midst of Suffering and Abuse Surviving chronic abuse, especially in a Christian context, can be disillusioning and disorienting, much like existing in the room from C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. On the surface, the room may seem normal, and yet, if one pays some attention, he or she will notice it is ill-proportioned, if not designed to gradually condition one to accept the distortion as what a room ought to be. One might think it is off, near enough to the true to deceive you for a moment. But with more probing, one can finally clearly see the room has several distorted, if not disturbing, details. In a similar way, abuse functions to do more than injure and destroy. It seeks to remake reality and warp images and perceptions. Those fighting to survive find that not only must they fend off a constant assault on their identity as coercive tactics are employed to ensure that abuser's distortions are made reality, i.e. felt in real time and space with maximal control, but the distortion may also be internalized and maintained by the social context as accepted reality. Both the target and Christian community will need all of their biblical and theological resources to resist this false and damaging distortion. They are to live out their calling as image bearers and, to borrow a phrase from a book title, push back the dark. Abuse becomes more complicated when intermixed with classic manipulative and abusive tactics, such as appeals to the example of Christ, catchwords such as forgiveness, grace, and submission. The experience of abuse is also made more difficult by bizarre expectations that those experiencing various and oftentimes prolonged attacks just move on, be more positive or less selfish from the community at large. These concepts are frequently, if not regularly, out of place and, in, and are used in oversimplified ways, especially as it relates to scripture. The result? It's implicitly or explicitly communicated that the target should not be concerned about their own self-respect, dignity, well-being, or need for healing from damage done to them. Rather, it is the abusive individual's voice that must be heard, his or her perceptions and feelings, and the group's sense of equilibrium that must be religiously guarded at all costs, as it, as it was with the infamous case involving Mars Hill Mark Driscoll, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the past actions of Willow Creek. In this brief presentation, I will be offering a particular way of approaching abuse theologically by considering it in the framework of iconoclasm, the Incarnation and the Mago Day. I will simultaneously be countering some of the harmful mis- misuses of scripture con- scriptural concepts that are often used to continue the abuse of power by offering a different theological framework from which to understand suffering, abuse, and bold resistance. As support, I will be drawing from the doctrine of Theosis and Christus Victor models of the atonement, as well as the language of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. This beginning of a constructive theology will be developed around two figures, the iconoclast, one who abuses, whether structural or personal, and the Incarnation, and our participation in them. This venture will involve arriving at an understanding of Christ and one's own identity through narrative placement. The Incarnation and the Iconoclast Let there be light, The Anastasis icon meets us in a burst of uncreated light as the incarnation descends down into the darkness of Hades, parting the earth as though it were the Red Sea and shattering the gates of the underworld. In a moment we are caught up in the transfiguration as we see him for who he is, the incarnation, our hope and life, yet still wrapped in the dark mystery that is God, signified by the gradation of blue surrounding him. With nail-pierced hands reminding us of his bloody struggle... He grabs Adam and Eve, weakened by sin by the wrists, drawing them up out of their graves towards himself to follow him in resurrection freedom. Christ is depicted not as the victim of mortality and evil, but as the victorious Son of God, clothed in glory, who by death has conquered death and has released those who have been held captive. The devil is bound, and the darkness of Hades has been filled with light. Um, You might want to check out John Bagley's Festival of Icons for the Christian year for that last part. Colossians 1, 13-14 describes those who are in Christ as persons who are liberated from the sovereignty of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is possible because the Son is the image, the perfect natural icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The Incarnation, the Son, who is fully God, yet differentiated from the Father and Holy Spirit, is the one by whom creatures, those other than God, were created and are being held together in God's ongoing creative act. Again, I'm going through Colossians here. Colossians 1. And through whom they are created. He is the firstborn of creation because he is the destined Lord of creation, and he is the one through whom all creation will be brought to completion. The Incarnation lifts us up, not just out of the grave, but also up to himself to become like him. As those made in the image of God and rescued by the Incarnation, we are called to be creative agents of liberation and representations of God in the world. The Incarnation is the basis for reconciliation. Colossians 1, 20-23 The Incarnation, the perfect human who cried tears of blood from stress, was crushed by the weight of the cross and died. Reconciliation through a fleshly body he entered into our darkness to rescue us from an alienated and hostile mind and evil deeds, bringing us hope, as it says in verse 21 through 23. And the incarnation chose to dwell or tabernacle among humans as one who stepped in on behalf of those who are, were marginalized and exploited by society by eating with them and openly associating himself with them while calling to account those who claimed holiness yet exploited others. And he demonstrated God's heart of Uh, for humanity by becoming impoverished, humiliated, and abused himself. His sacrifice in the flesh and breaking open the gates of Hades is a call into perfect love in him. Having been lifted from the grave into resurrection life, the church is called to enter into the dark with the light of Christ, exposing and binding evil wherever we find it, to set the captives free. We are called to recognize and revere the image of Christ within us as we endure unrelenting and unimaginable suffering and respect other image-bearers who are suffering as well. The destiny of a person and humanity are wrapped up in the Incarnation, the perfect and natural icon of God, the template and telos for all creation, who enables us to fully live out our purpose, to love out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And I'm going back to First Timothy uh, 1.4. Human beings were created to represent God on the earth, to be in relationship with God, the world, and one another. Put differently, God gave his face to Adam and Eve, to us, so that individually and collectively we may become his icons within the cosmos. Individuals only truly become themselves when they can accurately see the face of Christ in their reflection. To bear the image of God means one has the potential to grow into the likeness of Christ and ultimately be united with God. And What of the Iconoclast? The Incarnation and the Iconoclast represent two polarizing yet unequal figures. The first is creative and life-giving, and the other destructive, yet disconnected from the source of created life, and destined to fade with time. The iconoclast is a figure representing a power, whether personal, institutional, or mob. Functionally, they may be bullies at work, abusive individuals at home or church, oppressive systems, or, to lesser extent, merely cogs or a grouped identity that has taken on a life of its own, transcending any individual identity." In the end, the Iconoclast does not value human beings as made in the image of God, and in turning away from the other, the Iconoclast has turned from his or her own purpose. At its core, the Iconoclast worships a false image of his or herself and despises the image of God in others, and attempts to smash the image of Christ in others or recast that image into one of distortion. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., For the individual who hates, the beautiful becomes ugly, and the ugly becomes beautiful. The true becomes false, and the false becomes true. The evil becomes good, and the good becomes evil. An iconoclast sets what he or she perceives as the self in the place of God, having rejected the divine image within themselves and others, and in doing so puts him or herself in, the opposi- in opposition to the incarnation and his purposes. The abuse of power, among other things, is a pervasive form of idolatry. The abuse of one dearly loved and valued by God, and bears- who bears his image, is a life Um, orientation that is sacrilegious at its core reframing abuse in order to resist the iconoclast one must be able to identify him or even one's own dark shadow that piece of the self that eludes consciousness and if recognized would lead to the understanding that one is less good than perceived all that is not of God must be brought to light and exposed before it can be converted Part of one's calling as an image-bearer of God in the context of sin is to expose those dark corners, those ill-proportioned parts of the room, for what they are, so that they can be offered to the Lord and then transformed. Part of this offering process means reframing the iconoclast narrative, discerning it as a negation of the good, and seeing oneself and the other as made in the image of God, as beings worth fighting and dying for, rather than a necessary sacrifice to the false self or one, one, someone else's false self, for that matter. One must see abuse not as a one-time slip-up, nor as uh, just one sin to be excused or left unspoken, but a pervasive pattern of an idolatrous rebellion against the Incarnation and all that he stands for. That said, we now turn to part of our corporate shadow. Pat Baranowski believed God had given her a sign. She was a young woman in her 30s, a high-performing, performer, computer systems manager, who wanted to serve the church. She had just been praying about whether she should apply for a job at Willow Creek Church, when suddenly she was approached by Mr. Hybels in the parking in the church parking lot and offered a ride. Soon, she found great purpose in working for a church as Hybels' executive assistant, and this church was adding more than a thousand new members a year. And she gave both her skills and her heart to a mission she believed in. In the words of Scott McKnight, people like her are the ones who have made Willow Creek what Willow Creek Church is. Later, Pat would bravely break a horrible silence, divulging a secret she had kept for the sake of the church and the people she loved. Much of Bill's behavior described in the New York Times follows well-known predatory patterns, such as 1. Targeting, 2. Grooming, 3. Isolating or Entrapment, 4. Changing the Relationship, and 5. Maintaining Control. Forensic psychiatrist and chairman of the forensic panel, Dr. Michael Wellner, explains that victims are often targeted by their vulnerability in the eyes of the perpetrator. And at some point, virtually anyone, male or female, no matter how intelligent or streetwise, can find himself or herself in a vulnerable enough circumstance to be victimized. Pat, although highly skilled, a selection factor in other contexts, such as workplace bullying, was also recently divorced and looking for a new life. She also was at a period where she admitted she was not thinking very highly of herself and yet had been selected by an evangelical superstar. Key here is to understand that selection for abuse is a calculated choice based in the Predator's warped sense of reality, not in the inherent deficiencies of targets. The target has something the Predator wants, tied to their their base lust for power and control. After Bill selected Pat, he groomed her. Some trust was established with Pat through compliments and the meeting of some deeper needs, such as belonging. And Pat's boundaries were tested with a pay cut and some inappropriate flattery, such as calling her a knockout. Her skills were praised with some slight inappropriate remarks snuck in, just to test the waters. So, you know, like a knockout, it's not enough to raise huge alarm bells, but it's just enough to get, wait a minute, that's a little out of place for a pastor to say to one of his employees. But just wants to see her reaction, basically. Three, then Pat was isolated or made dependent on him by having her move in with him and his wife. He now had control over her job, social networks, sense of purpose, and her residence. On the outside, he could appear generous while he trapped his target and exploited her. Number four, then started to give Pat back rubs by the fireplace. Stunned, she remembered feeling unable to say no to her boss and pastor as he straddled her unhooked her bra, and touched her near her breast. This lasted for two years and escalated, including oral sex and watching porn. And five, having made Pat dependent on him and continuously switching between idealizing and then devaluing her. By the way, that creates a chemical, internal chemical dependency. Bill maintained control over her through denial and minimization, making her believe she was the one with the problem. Not that many of Bill's initial predatory moves were subtle and easily explained away and even rendered invisible to those on the outside looking in, as he could appear kind and generous and make her out to be crazy, rash, or ungrateful if she attempted to escape. Sadly, some might even be tempted to view his overt sexual misconduct in isolation, a slip-up due to Bill being in compromising situations. Easily sympathized with. This type of thinking only serves to help an abusive individual escape accountability and reinforce predatory pattern of behavior. In those instances where sexual misconduct is identified as a sin by a church or parachurch organization, too frequently, clergy and other leaders will advise targets to do things that retain the power of the abuser. Consider John, consider John Piper's infamous advice to the question of what a wife's submission should look like if, he, if the husband is an abuser. In Piper's words, if it is only something that is hurting her, then she endures verbal abuse, and perhaps being smacked one night, a season, and then seeks help from the church. He distances this advice from situations where the husband asks the wife to do things that are clearly sin, such as engaging in group sex. Wow. Piper's answer betrays several warped ideas, not all of which will be discussed here including implicitly that abuse is not a serious, as serious as, say, grouped sex. In other words, abuse, um, I guess he decides that's an isolated instance of uh, her being smacked around or a little bit. just happened out of the blue. Um, this kind of abuse and a move that mars the image of God, both physically and spiritually and psychologically, apparently is not on the list of clear sins or sins Jesus would tell the wife to resist on the spot. Further, Piper instructs the wife to placate the abusive individual by enduring and even flattering him before eventually entrusting a church down the road to help her abuser stop hitting her. To make matters worse, Dr. Steve McMullen, a sociologist, observes that ill-prepared clergy too frequently may advise the victim to be more obedient to the demands of the abusive spouse, or they may frame the problem in purely spiritual terms by urging prayer and forgiveness and reconciliation without addressing the abuse ignoring the d- dynamics of domestic violence. Hitting, coercion, manipulation, and other abuse acts abusive acts are seen in isolation rather than as a pervasive, destructive pattern. Once the perpetrator has expressed remorse and the victim has extended forgiveness, the pastor believes that the problem has been solved. From this perspective, domestic violence is seen by the pastor as a sinful episode to be forgotten and forgiven without any understanding of the complex issues of power and control that underlie abuse. Appeals to forgiveness, grace, and the cross take on a sinister character as they are ripped from the biblical context and used instead to shield the abusive individuals and with them the institution or social group from basic accountability, ensuring that they can continue to abuse, humiliate, and silence their target unopposed and with implicit, sometimes explicit endorsement or enablement from the crowd. And I'm using some gospel language there. (laughs) Ah, Instead of Scripture and the cross functioning as tools of resilience, strength, and even resistance, they are used to maintain an environment of what Annette Altman calls double abuse. Additional confusion and trauma are heaped on the target by family, friends, church members, and coworkers who impose harsh expectations, their own spin on the target's experiences, and further consequences if she doesn't comply with their expectations. In other words don't don't be hurt or injured from what just occurred, and we're going to ignore it. And yet the Incarnation remains a crucified Savior who sometimes rudely called out and exposed those with social and religious clout, naming their many er- uh, egregious sins. And it turns out their sin was not having too high a standard of holiness. And just my own aside here, um, they are accused of devouring widows' houses, getting other people before Jesus murdered that were good and just, um, I guess, were too much of a power rivals to them in their minds. So these these were not good people. They were called snakes. Anyway, the Incarnation countered their narratives of superiority set in opposition to the so-called sinners with his own narratives in the form of parables and various signs of a rival, powerful kingdom of God with different behavior norms and values. His examples as presented in scripture show everyone what it means to be human by proclaiming a new way of interacting with the other, by touching the untouchable, eating with and associating with the unworthy, so-called unworthy, and coming alongside the marginalized. And by the way, a lot of his parables um, had to do with uh, flipping. So he would... uh, show that the, in the hearing of the so-called sinners and Pharisees, like in the prodigal son, you would, it would turn out that the son that the Pharisees liked to think of themselves as was the one in rebellion, and the other son um, was the one that ended up doing what he was supposed to do. But the incarnation didn't stop there. Among a disempowered people, he became the marginalized. He was abandoned by those he loved, ridiculed, stripped, and surrounded, and laughed at in the process of being destroyed. He was lied about, and finally killed as a pathetic token of Rome's declaration of totalizing power, the King of the Jews. And yet, the works and message of the King of the Jews shook history, setting a new trajectory. His resurrection transfigured our experiences of abuse, turning notions of power upside down and making us inheritors and ambassadors of a new world, if only we will embrace it in faith. The Incarnation opposed the powers of darkness. He fought back the dark and paid the ultimate price. He calls each one of us to do the same. The Incarnation is the perfect and natural icon of God who challenges our self-perceptions with how he acts. As he addresses us, we encounter him as a person and are filled with hope and endurance. In our churches, the religious leaders, the people in the pews, and the broken, all must see that the power and blood of Jesus flows through our veins. All must see the image of Christ within and rise up to live out their calling to lead and care for the world. To be light as God's representatives, to honor the image within themselves and others, to say no to abuse in both words and action, resisting the iconoclast. All must see the distorted narrative and reality for what it is, expose and push against it with the truth of each person's value as image bearers and holding fast to one's identity in Christ. To have an identity in Christ is to image Christ, to share his likeness. How we respond to abuse and, whether we, represent, and whether, whether we repent in word and deed at church, at home, and in the workplace directly reflects our faith. Offending Hope Abuse does more than physically harm. It deconstructs and dehumanizes. It undermines one's sense of self. Each human being is uniquely made in the image of God with the calling to love and care for the world and those around them in unique ways. Abuse functions, among other things, to forcibly invert this calling. It recreates the world around targets and presses in, stripping away their agency and sense of self. An insidious form of abuse, often unrecognized, goes by the names of bullying, mobbing, and is rampant in workplaces and churches around the world. In the words of Mike Wilkerson, Uh, Someone who is well known for his uh, dealings with the Mars Hill Church and made some correlations between workplace bullying um, says that bullying isn't just about heated arguments over issues. It's beyond that. It results in damage to one's sense of identity and human dignity. Some of the more insidious tactics used here are ostracization, work sabotage, turning one or more people against the target to also shun or devalue them, Excessive attempts to control the target through social and professional perceptions, starting destructive lies or rumors, humiliating or intimidating them in various ways, and the list goes on. One who is an excellent employee, pastor, or volunteer, highly skilled and statistically otherwise very likable, is then known by everyone to be a demon, unprofessional, aggressive, or a poor worker. Basically like the so-called sinners in the Gospels, I would say. Over time, as the person is forced to interact and exist in this new, warped context, their work starts to slip. They are more on edge, snappy, and unfriendly, often reinforcing and confirming the barrage of distortions that the person had to experience for prolonged periods. Common outcomes for the targets are PTSD, debilitating anxiety, suicide, hypertension, nausea, hyperthyroidism, and a slew of stress-related diseases. As one is stripped of agency, community, and has their identity deconstructed, it is easy to slide into hopelessness. Who the person is, their character and abilities have not been mirrored back to them by those they work or live closely with, day to day. Instead, a different image has been forced into them, or installed, I would say. And yet, the god who saw Hagar in the desert, about to lose her son, also sees past the illusions and illness. He sees his image uniquely imbibed in the one he created. He sees the person imprisoned at their cubicle, the woman battered by her husband, and the man raped in the alley. His presence, his light, is everywhere at every time, uniting the past with the future. God's omnipresence brings the future into the present, recasting it with his resurrection power. And if one is in Christ, the presence of the Spirit is manifest in them, beautiful and untouched. The Spirit of God, who was with Christ and connects those belonging to him, continues to form his people into the likeness of Christ, even as they wrestle through the distortion, guilt, despair, isolation, and yes, even PTSD. The Spirit whispers into those marred by the iconoclasts that they belong to God, and that even as they carry their cross, they resemble Christ. Neither the might of Rome nor the power of hungry religious leaders could ultimately silence the incarnation, nor will his people ultimately be silenced. God responded with the resurrection of Christ, the first of many to come. In this, his people can have brief moments of peace in the here and now. Part of the spiritual battle, the worshipful process for those experiencing and healing from abuse, is recognizing themselves again, being able to see themselves apart from the false image installed by the iconoclast. It is working with the Spirit to see they are dearly loved. That they are indeed sons and daughters of Abraham, rather than the sinners the crowd has declared them to be. By the way, I think of the story of uh, Zacchaeus right there. Um, Jesus called him a son of uh, Abraham. The crowd is the one that called him a sinner. The text itself never actually says he's a sinner in a positive way. The distortion belongs to the iconoclast even if the effects are felt and experienced bodily over years and even from acts done by the target under duress and coercion. This is a process of illumination and exposure in the self and perhaps outside of the self where one differentiates another's evil from themselves and exposes it for what it is. And we all inhabit sacred space and our only hope is ultimately in God's future. And this future recasts our trials and difficulties. Because of the triumph of grace and the reconciling power of God's love, we have hope. In Romans 5, it speaks of our access by faith. Here, hope in God's glory intrinsically is intrinsically uh, tried, uh, tied to ethics. Tribulation can point to the hope that does not disappoint because God continues to work in us. The love of the Spirit is poured out in our hearts, whether recognized or not. How we respond even in our injured state our turning to God and wanting to do what is right in Him, even when we cannot think straight, and even as our outward light is dimmed. When we claim the God of the reconciliation and peace as our own, we have hope. The love the Spirit has of the Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. The concrete acts in the Spirit are pointing to God's future. We suffer under the weight of a world, under the power of darkness, some Ephesians language there, and yet our actions are those of light. Our characters are conforming to a different natural pattern, logicane from Romans 12.1, and end goal, the teleon, 12.2, than the iconoclast. This process does not entail a denial of reality, but seeing more in it. It is understanding that one is clothed with Christ and engaged in a battle that is not against flesh and blood, i.e., it's not all about the person doing the evil, but instead looking ahead towards the telos, end goal of our faith. Glorification as we are transformed into the image of Christ even through fire. Life is more than not sinning. It's the process of becoming like Christ, and this need not be interrupted even if one feels they are in complete darkness and chaos. Ultimately, hope offends the iconoclast. The false image of the iconoclast must be worshipped, and those imaging a different god must be destroyed. Thinking in zero sum, the iconoclast does not respect or tolerate the other. It exists in monologue, not dialogue, to borrow some MLK. The other other must be dehumanized, redefined, or if still human, qualified into subordination rather than mutual inheritance and leadership in God's world. Think Genesis 1, 26-28. Hope looks beyond the false image and does not acknowledge it as reality. If one simply is who they are and who they were called to be, even just a little bit, as Abel, the iconoclast cannot tolerate it the false self thrives on negation rather than positive construction. Non-being is faced with being. If one can look past the iconoclast destruction and declare and recast one's identity, and even the iconoclast, in the context of God's future, one has the basis for resistance rooted in hope, even if costly. For some, this could mean gaining the courage to leave an abusive individual. Hope in Christ declares another reality in the present, beyond what can be seen and seeks, from a position of safety and confidence in Christ, To say that in Christ, though afraid, I can be unafraid, because in opposition to your world of monologue, we shall overcome. Resisting Evil Does scripture teach one must submit to an iconoclast? Put Put a different way. Did Jesus sacrifice himself to uphold the image of the religious leaders and promote the might of Rome? Don't make those religious leaders look too bad. Just keep this hush hush. The sacrifice of the Incarnation was one of self-emptying and entering into our context to teach us to look towards the interest of others and pave the way forward for God's kingdom, Philippian, or Philippians 2, 4-11. The Incarnation lays down his life for the other. He does not offer others as sacrifices to false gods. This is the opposite of the mission of the iconoclast who seeks to smash and warp the image of God in others. And it is the opposite of what many churches do when they seek to maintain the false image of the iconoclast and with him or her, their own. Jesus maintained a sense of self and identity, i.e., you will see the Son of Man coming down on the clouds of heaven, even when not fully revealed at times. He challenged and exposed the iconoclast of his day, even to the point of death. This was his obedience and submission to God who responded to the crushing power of negation of the iconoclast with the resurrection. Hate and evil may kill, but love builds and resurrects. The iconoclast may be overcome with love, not worship of false gods, and not enablement. The iconoclast is overcome with love expressed in truth, justice, and creativity. The fight for survival for oneself rooted in the Mago day, never conforming to the face of Christ, honors Christ. And the more one heals and the more one can internally name evil for what it is, and recognize the face of Christ within themselves, the more they will be in a position to outwardly expose and fight back against the iconoclasts, if they choose. But the outward resistance to the iconoclasts is not primarily the fight of those abused. It is your call. It is the call for, of the corporate body of which the target is merely a part of and whose primary need is to heal and disentangle themselves from the iconoclast's false image. That's the target's primary need. They need to find themselves again. Um, The corporate body needs to be the ones resisting. That is is the corporate body's call, primarily. In a Christian context, where a target is pressured to further surrender their sense of self, they must find their self again. We, the church, are commanded, and do not participate in the unfruitful actions of darkness. Instead, you should reveal the truth about them. Ephesians 5.11 Denial is a powerful inhibitor of our calling as icons of Christ. Just as intuition protects us from danger, denial protects us from something too, unwanted information. Denial serves to eliminate discomfort of accepting realities we'd rather not acknowledge. You can stop and ask one of life's most powerful questions. What am I choosing not to see here? Allowing abuse to continue in the name of forgiveness, grace, or any other superficial term is not loving the target Target and it is not truly extending love and grace to the iconoclast either. Not seen in a Christian worldview, anyway. And we are not called to love figments. To the extent that we, the people of God, support or enable abuse in our diverse context, we too rebel against our calling as image bearers and attempt to subvert God's kingdom, recognized or not. Among other things, abuse is a severe, pervasive rebellion against God. We show our devotion and worship of God in how we honor and respect his icons. 1 John 4, 20, NASB says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Much is made of target showing inappropriate veneration to the iconoclast and pretending they are not injured by being anxious for nothing while having an anxiety disorder or having the joy of the Lord when the core of who they are is under assault. But perhaps God sees things differently. The Incarnation, who was himself the perfect human and icon of God, was crushed by the weight of the cross. And he routinely sided with those encircled, those ostracized and labeled unclean or sinners. He saw immeasurable worth and value in their desperate efforts, gratitude, and acts of worship. Can we see the beauty in the icons around us? Can we recognize and showcase the Imago Dei by standing beside those who are being targeted or destroyed? Or will we stand beside the iconoclasts thinking we can change them by befriending them in the presence of their victims. Sick. <laughs> if we are leaders in a church or organization, um, and we put, uh, sorry, let me read that. If we are leaders in a church or organization, will we put an end to sexual and racial harassment, bullying, mobbing in its legal and illegal forms, or will we look the other way? That is, will we, to the best of our ability, have consequences for abusive behavior Or will we try and further silence and dehumanize those who are our spiritual equals? Resistance, and this happens by the way in subtle and not so subtle forms, official and not official forms. There's lots of ways to put social pressure on someone to be quiet, don't push too hard. Resistance to the iconoclast rooted in hope can take a variety of forms. The black church exists as a powerful example of Christ for all of us to imitate in unique ways In the 1890s, lynching was made a family affair, a ritual celebration of white supremacy. Black bodies were burned slowly for hours and hung from trees as postcards were distributed. These were demonstrations of power and assertions in action about white and black identities. Many were unable to physically defend themselves or protest. They were outnumbered and silenced with the threat of violence. And yet the black church recognized that in a real way Jesus was black. In the lynching tree, they saw that those who professed faith in a crucified Messiah were themselves crucifying Christ. They refused to get lost in despair. They worshipped. The spirituals, spirituals, gospel songs, and hymns focused on how Jesus achieved salvation for the least through his solidarity with them and even unto death. The God of the cross does not leave us with a cross. He leaves us with new life and future beyond it. One's trials become a point of pride in connection to the work and spirit in Christ. The suffering of Christ is the basis for our own suffering. Having meaning and love in the Spirit is the sign of our being in Christ. The reconciling with God brings about a change in heart so that we can even see our enemies in a new way. We fight back against the iconoclast by reasserting our identities in Christ, making the insulting suggestion that the iconoclast, as made in the image of God, belongs not over but with us, hand in hand in in God's future. The Iconoclast is exposed as an Iconoclast in the very contrast the Iconoclast maintains. And those in Christ are revealed to be inheritors of God's future. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., hate serves to destroy, love serves to build up, hate serves destructive ends, love seeks constructive ends. Hate seeks to annihilate, love seeks to convert, hate seeks to live in monologue, love seeks to live in dialogue. We treat both ourselves and the Iconoclast as persons, nothing more and nothing less. We recognize, but we do not invent, the good in the iconoclast where it is present. Basically, we see the human in them, and we we identify it. We we seek to build where they seek to tear down. Basically, we rebuke the inflated image, and perhaps laugh at it just a little bit. The aim of this presentation uh, was to encourage the Christian community to consider that the theological room we are all accustomed to might be ill-proportioned. The distortion need not be accepted as what a room ought to be, and perhaps, intentions aside, points to its opposite. I hope that corporately we can find the courage to point out those distortions, to name and dismantle them, as well as fight alongside survivors of abuse, as they honor the image of God within, reclaiming their sense of self and realize that this is our fight. The good news? The Incarnation has already walked this path before us and and ensured our victory in Him, But for now, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun.